Well, let's pray. Father God, as we uh, have taken in communion and, and received from you uh, simple emblems of uh, bread and wine uh, to represent your body and blood, we recognise that we need spiritual food today. Uh, Lord, and, and we are in such a prosperous country, and yet uh, so many of us have neglected the true food, uh, which is to know you and to do your will, and to believe uh, in you, Lord Jesus, and find eternal life in you. And so, Lord, as we uh, consider uh, these words of yours this morning, uh, would you help us to receive this as the bread of life, as true food uh, for our needs? Lord, help us this morning. And Lord God, we do pray for uh, our, our nation, uh, Lord, and our state and our city. Uh, Lord, we are so weak and helpless and unable to save ourselves. Well, the state of Christianity in uh, this country and this city is in decline, and yet, Lord God, you are not in decline. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so because of your greatness, uh, Lord, and because of our great need for you, would you work in this city? Would you work in this country to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, to uplift and revive uh, your own church and people, that it might be strong and filled uh, with servants of yours who would give their lives totally for you and be filled with your Holy Spirit? Well, work across this country to give life to those uh, who are in, in spiritual death, to give light to those in darkness, to give healing uh, to those who are sick. Uh, Lord, and we say this because you are the only hope of the world. Uh, we need you this morning, uh, Lord Jesus, and we need you every day. And we uh, say this on behalf, we intercede on behalf of our country. Lord, come and work, we pray. Speak to us through your word today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning's uh, text is uh, looking at as part of a continuing series through the book of Matthew. And we see uh, Jesus presented uh, as an investment banker, almost. Uh, we see that in the text, Jesus is someone who you know, gives out large quantities and expects a return from his investment. So, and we kind of understand how invest, investment banking works uh, in our culture today, so I'll put it in terms that we might understand. You imagine uh, you have a large, uh, very wealthy uh, private firm that has lots of money at its disposal, and uh, the directors of uh, this company then, you know, give the money out to uh, particular employees expecting that they will use that money to invest and do well with. And to the best performing uh, employees, so those higher up, uh, they will give a very large amount, maybe $5 million, to invest with uh, for a time. Uh, to those who are probably not as advanced in their career, they might give $2 million. And to then to someone who is sort of a more entry level, they might give $100,000. Uh, to send out with. And so all of these uh, different employees are given responsibility, right? If you're an employer, you have to do something with that money, particularly if you're an investment banker. You're expected to get a return for your company because people have put their money into uh, your company in order to get themselves a return. And so eventually, you know, the, at your annual review, the boss wants the numbers, and you come forward, and, and, and so you, know, you see these three employees come forward, and the one uh, who has 
um, you know, $5 million and made 100% return. Good job. Well done. You know, you'll get more work, of course, and you should be quite pleased and your boss is quite pleased with you. And the one who received a couple of million dollars, well, that one also uh, made a 100% return. So, well done. You know, it's been a good year. It's been an excellent year. And uh, you've worked very hard, so well done. And uh, you also uh, should be joyful and pleased because uh, your company is very pleased with you. But to the one who actually took $100,000, like a new employee, they didn't do anything with it. They didn't even invest the money in, in a bank, which gets a very small uh, interest rate, we, we know now, very, very small return, even if the money just goes into a term deposit or something like that, did nothing with it. Now, in our secular world, what do you think is going to happen to that employee? They're going to get the sack. They won't have a job. You know, you, like at your annual review, if you did literally nothing for that whole year... Like, you can't expect to have a job at the end of it. So this is a very, um, and this is the context of this uh, parable that Jesus tells in our own terms. It makes a lot of sense to us. But Jesus is talking about a little bit more than just money. And so uh, the so topic that sort of arises from this text for us is stewarding. And I want to tell you a few things about stewarding. And we'll firstly look at some principles of stewarding what that means, what that looks like, not just for money, but of course all things in our lives, because we recognise that everything uh, we have comes from God. So look at the principles of stewarding. Then we'll look at uh, what it means to deny our responsibility to steward. And we, we see that in the text. Uh, we see someone who's given a bit and doesn't do anything with it. And so we'll see what it means to deny uh, our responsibility to steward. And then finally we will look at the reward of stewarding and how God rewards those who look after the things that he gives them. So firstly, some principles of stewarding. Well, uh, if you can imagine uh, just for a moment that you, and I think, I think they still do this actually, uh, you're given a, like a guide dog as a puppy. And uh, you know, you're supposed to hang on to the, uh, to the prospective guide dog for a few years, and uh, a certain amount of time, I'm not sure it's a few years, a certain amount of time to uh, get it used to people before then uh, this dog gets handed on to people who will train it up to be a guide dog to help those um, who are vision impaired, or perhaps just a general assistance dog uh, to help people who need uh, that sort of animal. So you can imagine that you're given this dog, uh, this, little, this little puppy, and you know, you're expected to look after it. You're expected to spend lots of time with it, you know, part of the interview process. You know, do you have enough time to spend with this, with this puppy? Are you going to you know, take care of it? Are you going to give it lots of love and care? You know, and you say, yes, 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 that's what I'll do. This is the puppy. And then you receive the puppy and you don't do anything with the puppy. You leave the puppy at home and it cries all day. And those of you with puppies will know that that's what puppies do. They're very sad when you're not around them. And you invest no time in this puppy because you're too busy to look after the puppy. Of course, when the Guide Dog Association comes to pick up the puppy from you and this puppy has no affection for people whatsoever and is very confused and distressed, and you're probably feeling very sad for this puppy right now, as we all are, all of us you know, love the idea of a, a looking after a puppy and very sad when a puppy is neglected. Gee, the Guide Dog Association is not going to be happy with you, of course, because you have a responsibility 
for that animal. You're supposed to steward the responsibility for that animal. And if you neglect that responsibility, you are left culpable. You have not done what you were supposed to do. And so we see in our text today, in a similar way, we are entrusted with something that's not ours. Like the puppy, you don't own the puppy in that illustration. We're entrusted with something that's not ours, and we have to treat it as someone else's property. Now, in the text, the uh, term uh, that's used is talents. Now, uh, that was actually a t- term generally ascribed to weight. And it's pretty ambiguous as to what it means, most theologians believe. So, what this means for us is uh, Jesus is explaining that you know, everything has been given to us. It's sort of nondescript, so the ambiguity helps us know that really everything that we have has been given to us from God. Some people like to use talents in sort of the modern idea of talents as in the sort of gifts you have, the abilities you have and the strengths you have and that's true but it doesn't just extend to that. We're thinking career, we're thinking finance, we're thinking time, we're thinking your family, we're thinking your station of life, we're thinking everything that you have that is with you at the moment, all your possessions, what you literally do with yourself, everything that you have is a gift to you from God. And He expects you to look after it because it's His that's been given to you to look after. And this is quite interesting because most of us tend to think of our stuff and our time and our careers as ours. And so we act like owners. You know, and if you own something, you can do whatever you want with it. You know, it's my money. I earned my money. I worked hard for my money. And so I will spend on it on whatever I like. That's the way we tend to think about things, our possessions, everything else. But if you're given something with the expectation that, that it's actually not yours and we're to look after it, well, you are supposed to treat it differently. And we see in the text that Jesus will come and get an accounting for how you used what you were given. We see this time and time in the Bible, there will be a judgment for how we used what we were given by Jesus himself. Now often we don't think like that, we think of ourselves as owners, not stewards. A guy called George Mueller, who's a fascinating uh, guy who was around sort of the... um, of the 19th century, and he used to run a lot of orphanages. He was a pastor in Bristol, England. He was a German guy. And one of the things that he um, was quite well known for was trusting God by faith. So he, he really believed that everything that he had was God, so much so that um, at these orphanages they used to run, when they'd run out of bread, they'd get all the kids to sit down together at, at the tables at dinner time, and they'd give thanks to God for the food of which they had none, and then someone would knock on the door and say the bread truck just broke down out the front and so there'd be food for all the children. And God seems to work when you have faith, of course, is the lesson. But this George Mueller uh, taught actually a fair bit about stewarding. And this is the way that he puts it. He says, The child of God has been brought, bought, sorry, bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus and is altogether his property, with all that he possesses, his bodily strength, his mental strength, Uh, his ability of every kind, his trade, his business, art or profession, his property, etc. For it is written, 
Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. And so the first principle that we need to know is we've been entrusted with God's property, not our own. You're not an owner, you're a steward. If you're one of God's people, hey, everything that you have, even your time, even your energy, is a gift from God to be used for his purposes, not yours. It's not like, um, just to switch back to the investment banking scenario I mentioned before, if you're given $100,000 to invest, you're not just going to go and spend it at the pokies, because that's, like, that's a bad investment, just generally. You're not just going to go spend it on big dinners for yourself. You're not just going to you know, do some renovations at your house, are you? No. The money is for him. The money is for you know, the, the bosses. It's their money, and so you're supposed to use it for their interests. Okay, so that's the first principle. We've been entrusted with his property, not ours. The second principle, we see this in verse uh, 15, is that different amounts are given according to our ability. So Peter Parker, it's called the Peter Parker principle, actually, in Spider-Man. Peter Parker principle is great, with great power comes great responsibility. Oh, you're good this morning, you're doing well. With great power comes great responsibility if you're Spider-Man. But I think the principle applies here too. The more you have, the more that is expected of you. And in fact, I did a bit of digging into the origin of that principle, and of course it does come from the Bible, as it turns out. So there you go, you can find uh, biblical principles anywhere. But we're given different amounts according to our ability. That's what we see in the text. Now this is really important. Uh, for us, because often we fall into something called the comparison trap. That is, we look at other people who have more than us and we go, oh, I wish I had more. I wish I was better. Because, and we're not just talking finances or relationships which, or en- energy or strength or you know, their looks or their health or whatever, it's everything. And sometimes we just, we just think, if only I was like that person. But if you were like that person, then you would have a much greater responsibility. Wouldn't you? And sometimes we look down upon other people and go, oh, at least I've got more than them. You know, like, I feel better about myself because at least I've got more than them. And so we, we look down upon others with sort of pride and think, hmm, I'm pretty good when I can compare myself to others. But you forget that because of all that you have, you have a great responsibility. You know, you notice that the the two uh, ones who had the largest amounts, the servants had the largest amounts, the one who had five talents, the one who had two, they had a a bigger responsibility. They've got more money to handle. And so they've got to invest that and use that well. To those who much has been given, much will be required. And so comparison is a dangerous game because it leads us into either a state of pride, I'm better than those other people, or envy. I wish I was like them. But actually we see in the text, the interesting thing is the reward for those who are faithful with the five talents and those who are faithful with the two is exactly the same. So it's not actually how much you're given, it's what you do with it that matters to God. You know, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You've been faithful over little, now I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's verbatim the same for the one who uh, you know, looks after the five talents and the one who looks after the two. It's the same. And so really, at the end of the day, our comparison really doesn't help us. In fact, often our comparison with other people actually just leads to two equally unhelpful things, pride or envy. And God wants us to not worry about those kinds of things, but actually steward what we have. So it's not the number of our talents, but how we use them. Okay, that's the second principle. The third principle is this, and I think this one is um, short, but very important. See this in verse 16. It says, He who received the five talents went at once and traded with them. He went at once. There was no delay. He just got stuck in and did it. Now, later on, we see that the, the, uh, the servant who didn't do anything with their one talent is called slothful and wicked or lazy. And yet here we see the one who like straight away starts to invest their five talents as being productive, as being efficient, as working hard, as in getting into things without delay. And we must understand that this is a principle that God holds to for his people. He does not like laziness. In, in fact, the Bible uh, says that, that the one who is lazy is akin to the one who destroys in the wisdom literature. Now, this is troubling because a lot of us, me included, tend towards laziness. We just want to do things that are easier for us. We want to do stuff in our time. But what does the faithful servant do at once? At once, God values people who work hard and are not lazy. He wants us to use what we have well and efficiently. All right, so we've got three principles of stewarding. We've been entrusted with his property, not ours, so we're not owners but stewards. Second principle, we've been given different amounts according to our ability. And and, the more that we have, the more that's required, the less that we have, the less that's required of us. And, and so we are to focus on what we have to do, not compare ourselves to what others have to do, because that doesn't help us regardless. And we are to get on with it, to use what we have for God's sake. Now, there's many different directions we could apply uh, this in, um, but I'm just going to choose one uh, for this particular section for us, because I think this is helpful uh, for those of us who are sort of in a career at the moment. So we're going to think about careers for a minute. And we're going to back to our friend George Mueller, because he had quite a bit to say about how we steward our time and steward our energy and our resources when it comes to our careers. And he had sort of three aspects to that for us. He talks about the type of work we do. He talks about the, like, the energy with which we work. And he talks about the proceeds from our work. Okay, So the type of work we do. This is what George Mueller says. He says, If our occupation be of that kind that we cannot ask God's blessing upon it, or that we should be ashamed to be found in it at the appearing of the Lord Jesus, or that it of necessity hinders our spiritual progress, then we must give it up and be engaged in something else. But in few cases only this is needful. So we'll start at the end and then we'll work our way back. So he's saying this doesn't necessarily apply to anyone, 
everyone, so this doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, but we all need to think about it. His point is, is that many of us have not thought about our careers in terms of, does God actually approve of what I'm doing? And further, and I think he makes a very important point that makes us very uncomfortable, does our job, our career, hinder our spiritual progress? What a question. What a dangerous question to ask this morning. Does our job hinder our spiritual progress? Because that would be wasting our time, as far as God is concerned. Because God is not just on about your career. Your life is much broader than that. He won't go at the end of your life, you know, what did you do for a job? Only. Will he? God has a much more holistic view of his people and he doesn't want us to be workaholics and consumed by our careers. And there is a great danger that when we are workaholics or consumed by our careers, that it does hinder our spiritual progress. So his advice is set it aside, do something else. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite strong advice, but I think it's important advice because it sets things in the right order. Now, we need, to, we need to think about this carefully, don't we? Because many of us have shift work, which, which makes spiritual progress difficult. Many of us get paid more for shifts on the weekends. Many of us get paid more when we work on Sundays, don't we? In fact, there is a loading. Do you know why that loading is there, by the way? Because culturally, Sunday was set aside for people to work, as for people to go to church. Culturally, Sunday was set aside for people to go to church, historically. And so to get you to work, they're going to pay you more. Did you know that? So when you think about it, we, like, it is actually money sometimes or church. We don't necessarily have to work Sundays. But if we prefer it for the sake of getting a few extra dollars in the account, when we could have a little bit less but have better spiritual progress, gee. And, and you know, this, I can see that this is going to make us feel uncomfortable. But it is a fair question. Are we stewarding our careers properly? Because that temptation will always be there. And that's for shift workers, those who are running their own business. Gee, it's hard running your own business. You know, there's demands of you all the time. If you're if you seven days of trading, you're always busy, always got something on, and it will always demand more from you. And in fact, the more that you give to it, the more it will demand. What will you do with that? Does your, let me just say one more thing on this, does your work so consume you that you have no energy left whatsoever to grow in your faith in Jesus, to, to be part of uh, the life of the church outside of an hour on Sunday. Maybe something is out of order for you. Okay, I've got to speed up now. I'm getting a bit excited, so let's, let's speed up. Uh, so Mueller, right, the type of work we do, the fact that we work. So Mueller says this, or, or the type of energy we put into it. He says, why am I engaged in this trade or profession? ought first to be settled in the fear of God and according to the revealed will of God. And if we cannot say in honesty of heart, I do carry on my business, I am engaged in my trade or art or profession as a servant of Christ Jesus, whose I am, because he has bought me with his precious blood and has commanded me to work, and therefore I work. So Mueller's point is really interesting. He's saying that no matter how much you get paid, 
No matter whether you have enough money that you don't really need to work, Mueller says, according to God's word, that we ought to be working regardless because God has commanded his people to work. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean paid employment. Many of us work in a volunteer circumstance. Many of us work at home when we've got young kids. We're looking after a family. They're all work as far as God is concerned. But why do we do it? Do we do it because God's interested in what we're doing? Do we do it because he's given us energy and strength and, and a time in life and capacity to do work for his sake? Or are we doing it for other reasons? It's a fair question. And finally, I'm not going to talk heaps about this because typically when you think about stewarding, you talk about money. Uh, but we're going to save that for another sermon. But he talks about the proceeds from work. And this is um, what Mueller says. He says that as stewards, we should labour in our calling because the earnings of our calling are the Lord's and not our own, as is bought us with his blood. So again, this brings us back to the comparison between owners and stewards. Owners tend to think, I work my money, I do what I want with it. Stewards tend to think, God has given me this energy, capacity, this time in life, this training. Everything I have is a gift from God in order that I can do my job. And even doing work is a gift from God in a way that I honour him. So therefore, the proceeds from my work, i.e. my income, is also a gift from God. And then I use it for his sake. And this, all of this, all of this is totally countercultural. And you should expect it to be countercultural. You should expect that every one of these things will grate against you the wrong way. You should. Because the culture says the opposite. Because the culture says your money, your career, it's all about you. But no. The master says he's been, it's been given to you in order that you would use it for him, not yourself. Now, Jesus himself was a worker uh, in, in many ways, actually. Jesus took on his father's trade as a sort of carpenter builder. Uh, and so that's good for the tradies amongst us. Jesus would have had pretty, like, tradie hands, <laughs> wouldn't he? He knew how to do a hard day's work. And Jesus also worked as a teacher, Later on, when he sort of set aside uh, his uh, other career, so Jesus had a time of career change, interestingly, Uh, became a teacher or a rabbi, sort of took on uh, different disciples as spiritual apprentices to work with him for a time. And then he did an even greater spiritual work on top of that. So it wasn't just a carpenter, it wasn't just a teacher. Uh, Jesus did the, the great work. As we know on the cross, so this is earlier in Matthew uh, chapter 20, says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus literally worked and spent his time and his labor for the sake of God and his glory, even unto death. That's how Jesus did it. All right, we've hit the principles of stewarding. We're going to look briefly at what it means to. Deny, deny our responsibility to steward. And we see this in the, uh, the servant who is given one talent. And what do they do? He just goes and buries it. Does absolutely nothing with it. Why is that? Well, was when we actually get an insight into the thinking of this steward who doesn't do anything uh, with 
you know, the, the money that they're supposed to be investing or this resource that they're supposed to be investing a little bit later on. Uh, we see it here in verse 24. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground here. Here you have what is yours. This servant totally misunderstands the master. Doesn't recognize the generosity of the master, doesn't take the responsibility that they have, neglects the gifts from the master. And we see a little bit later that this servant was fearful. Verse 25, so I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Now, there's some interesting principles here, but I'm just going to point out a couple. One is when you misunderstand like God's goodness and you think that he just wants you to do stuff for him and you don't realize that everything you have is a gift from him, that is like a fundamental flaw in your understanding of who God is. And a result of that for you will be a fear of God and not a godly fear that we were mentioning earlier, sort of a reverence and respect and an honor of him. It will be a fear that leads you to do nothing for his sake and be totally self-focused. You will not invest for his sake. You will do stuff just for yourself. I mean, this servant may have had other stuff going on in their life, but whatever they were given from the master, they did not use for him. And we see later on that this ungodly fear actually leads to judgment. This servant doesn't care about the master, doesn't want anything to do with the master, just trying to get him off his back. Yeah, have what's yours. I'm not interested in you. And so the master, well says, well, if you don't want me, then I don't want you. As we shared last week or the week before. God essentially gives us what we want if we reject him. And it's seen here in the way that we steward our things. In fact, and and our effort and our energy. In fact, interestingly, our relationship with God in this text is seen on whether we are working for God or working for ourselves. Okay, let's have a think about a really good example of someone who did steward their life for God's glory. Uh, William Wilberforce, many of us have heard the name. Uh, He was the British abolitionist, so he worked as a politician uh, for the abolition of the slave trade, predominantly African slave trade, and he worked to abolish it and to outlaw it uh, in the Commonwealth uh, countries. He became a Christian at 26 Uh, and became absolutely committed to evangelical doctrine. That is, he believed that Jesus died and rose from the dead. He was totally committed to the Bible. He was totally committed to the work of Christ on the cross in his resurrection and sharing that with others. And that was the the sort of church uh, group and the philosophy that he held for his life. And, but, Wilberforce, interestingly, he spoke on productivity. This is what he says. He says, "'No man has the right to be idle.'" Where is it in such a world as this that health and leisure and affluence might not find some ignorance to instruct, some wrong to address, some want to supply, some misery to alleviate? He's saying, you as a citizen of this world have a responsibility to use what you have for the benefit of others. That's essentially work. That's essentially the basis of work. What is actually not just for you, it's so that this world... and would be developed. And so a a proceed from our work is a benefit to us in money, 
but most of our work has some sort of general benefit to our society. So this is Wilberforce. And of course, what did he do? Yes, he put his time into something very important. But get this, a a writer called Matt Perman says this about Wilberforce. He says, Wilberforce led a life full of good works. Here's the interesting thing. Wilberforce wrote one book in his lifetime and it was not on social reform. It was on the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works. He did it because he realised that the way to produce a life of good works and social reform is not to focus first on good works and social reform, but on the source of those works, which is the gospel. Let me say it this way. It is because Wilberforce actually knew God that he stewarded his time well. Okay. Now, let's step back a moment and think about the unfaithful servant. That unfaithful servant thought he knew God, but he didn't. And so what did he do? He squandered what God had given him. And yet here we see someone who knows God and knows that out of his faith in God, that should well up into us doing things for God and living for God. So really the difference is whether you know him or not and how well you know him. And so we need to learn from Jesus in this respect. We need to learn about knowing Jesus deeply and being transformed by him. Uh, Last year, after my dad passed away, and I don't like saying passed away because that's a bit ethereal, but... He actually went to be with Jesus. And that's a good thing to say. So when my dad passed to glory last year, it made me think about my own life, legacy. What have I been doing with my life to this point? What will I do with my life in the future? You know, and many of us think about those things at critical times in our lives like that. You know, when someone, someone dies or, you know, something monumental in your life happens or you get an injury or a sickness and you're like, you look back and you look forward and go, is it enough? Now, this is an interesting place to be in when we think about these things because in our hearts we can go, oh, have I done enough? Has my life been good enough? We might read a text like this and go, oh, have I made a hundred percent return on God's investment in my life? Have I done enough? It's a dangerous place to be, and particularly if we have aspirations or, you know, we, we like had big aspirations early in our life and we haven't met them and so we're actually really disappointed with ourselves. We might look back and go, no, my life's been a mess. I've made a lot of mistakes and things haven't turned out the way I wanted to. I made some bad investments. I tried my best. Didn't work out. That's a difficult position to be in, isn't it? When we think about, you know, what was our legacy. And so how does God help out, or how does God address those who've really struggled to steward what they have done well? And what level do we need to achieve of stewarding to be accepted by God? This is a really interesting question and this question is answered for us uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. 
think it's chapter 8 and verse 9. Let me read this out for you. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, Jesus was a steward for God too. In fact, what the Bible shows us is that the master of the firm, with all the resources, stepped into a world with his servants and went and worked for the sake of the master himself. This is Jesus. He's got all the resources of heaven behind him. In fact, everything is his, not just what he's been given. Everything is his, and he steps into our world. Why does he do it, though? Well, on the one hand, we see the excellence of God in Jesus. He is perfect in every way. Jesus is, you can't fault him. When when tenderness is called for, he's tender. When strength is called for, he's strong. When mercy is called for, he is merciful. When hard work is called for, he works hard. Jesus is utterly faithful, and so we see the excellence of God in Jesus as a steward of the resources of heaven. But in this text, we see that he used his riches for something far greater than just what we might ordinarily imagine. In fact, he spent his riches by becoming poor. What did he spend them on? Well, we know that Jesus actually became physically poor and was sort of homeless to some degree at some point during his three years of ministry. We know that that happened. But this is talking about a spiritual poverty. Jesus literally poured out his life for people who were unfaithful servants. Because we've all been given good things from God, Everything we have is a gift from him and all of us have not met the mark. But Jesus has all the resources of heaven, so much is required of him and he fulfilled it at every turn. And he used his great resources and his great wealth to pay for our deficiency. So when we would come on our own and say, gee, I haven't... I haven't spent all my money that well. I haven't used my time that well. To God, Jesus said, don't worry. I've got you covered. Because he pays ours out of his own wealth. That's the gospel. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's saying, I'm paying for it out of all the riches of heaven. So that he would give it to people like you and me who desperately need it. And this is the difference about knowing him. Because when you know that he's done this for you, then when you really know that, you are willing to do anything for him. Your life becomes that of a steward. You stop trying to do stuff for yourself and realize, gee, if Christ did that much for me, then I will do anything for him. All right, we're going to leave the reward of stewarding for another time. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for what you have done, uh, the work that you have uh, done for us and in our place. And Lord Jesus, we ask even 
this morning that you would make the reality of your work for us as the perfect and faithful steward true to our hearts so that we would give our lives and our careers for you, that we would use our time for your sake, that we would stop comparing ourselves to others, but rather live for your sake and yours alone. We trust you, our Lord and our God. We thank you for your goodness to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.